0: Good morning everyone. This time I was able to take off my mask and not take off my glasses, so I'm getting better at this. <clears throat> uh, the text we'll be studying today is uh, Romans 12 verses 1 through 8, which can be found on page 947 in your pew bibles. Uh, I'll be considering a few other passages to aid in my interpretation today, and I want you to become familiar with those as well and not just take my word for it, uh, so I trust that you will be helped to have a copy of God's word in front of you. All right, Romans chapter twelve, starting in verse one. Hear now the word of God. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to resent your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good of prophecy and proportion to our faith, of service and our serving, the one who teaches and his teaching, the one who exhorts and his exhortation, the one who contributes and generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, we come before you um, and we ask that you would lift the veil from our hearts that we may be able to understand what is what it is that you and your spirit have said through your servant Paul, uh, first to the church in Rome and now to us. Um, Father, I ask that if there is anything here that we land on that is of you, that you would hide it in our hearts, that we would meditate on it day and night, that it would be a means by which we can set our minds on the things above, and then we can love you more. Um, but, Father, if, if I say anything that is not of you, then I ask that it would fall on deaf ears, uh, or else that people will quickly see that it is not of you uh, and that uh, that Christ's first church would not be led astray but would be led further uh, into your statutes. Father, you know that I am not equipped uh, to preach this morning. You, do, you know that I do not have the right words, um, but you do. So I ask that your spirit uh, would intercede, uh, that the preaching and the reading and the listening of your word may bring more glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was in 1832 that Jeremy Bentham, the great English scholar of law, philosophy, and economics, would pass away. Um, amidst his prolific life, Bentham is perhaps best known for his, uh, or as the inventor of utilitarianism, which was popularized by his pupil, John Stuart Mill. Uh, but more interestingly, after his death, Bentham's body was preserved, in, in accordance with his will, And legend has it that his skeleton would be wheeled into administrative buildings uh, and meetings uh, at University College London. The minutes would then read, Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. (laughs) And the question I wish to pose to you today is this. Are you like Jeremy Bentham? Are you physically present but spiritually absent when it comes to the church? So look with me again at verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I hope this idea of presenting yourself to God sounds a bit familiar. Uh, A few weeks ago, I preached from a parallel passage in Romans 6, where the Apostle Paul exhorted us to stop presenting our bodies to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, and to present them instead to God as instruments for righteousness. Uh, You may recall I spent most of my time on the salvific process in which we were brought from death to life in Christ Jesus, uh, with only a couple minutes of application. Uh, the difference in today's text is that it is primarily concerned with application. Uh, in fact, it's Paul's introduction to a much larger section on Christian living. If it's helpful for you to categorize the sermon, uh, which never it is for me, but for some people it is, uh, I'll be asking three broad questions as we go along. So, first, what is a living sacrifice? Second, how do we begin the process of being a living sacrifice? And third, in what context? Are we to become a living sacrifice? So we're going to look at what is a sacrifice, how do we become one, and in what context do we become one? So first, what is a living sacrifice? Well, Paul says to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, but what does that mean? Uh, Perhaps you remember from last month that to present yourself is to give yourself over. So Paul means you are to give your body to God as a sacrifice. Uh, But we may still be uncertain about what it means to be a sacrifice, I can think of three main ways uh, that we can interpret this. Full disclosure, two of them are wrong. But I don't want anyone to be taken by surprise if they come across the wrong ones. So here we go, starting with option one. Option one says that to be a living sacrifice is to live in such a way that merits God's favor. This theory says that since the pure and spotless sacrificial lambs were used to make man right with God, we too need to be pure and spotless so that God will love us. You've hopefully never heard it argue quite that way before, but you've almost certainly heard the sentiment behind it. It's the philosophy of the Pharisees. They believed that God thought highly of them because they lived a spotless life. More recently, the motto for this option has become, God helps those who help themselves. Uh, You may have even been told that this is in the Bible. It's not. Not only is it not in the Bible, it is antithetical to the gospel. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He doesn't even help those who will not help themselves. For God helps those who cannot help themselves. This is what Paul has been laboring to communicate in the first half of Romans. Salvation is not by our work. It's not by our merit. It's not by our will. It's by faith. Sometimes people misunderstand faith and act like it's just mere intellectual belief that God exists. James puts that argument to shame by saying even the demons believe and shudder, but, but, but they believe. So faith is not mere belief. It is the acknowledgement that we are meritless and that we cannot be right with God unless we trust in him to make it right. So this interpretation, option one, that says being a living sacrifice means meriting God's favor is completely out of the running. Option two isn't much better. It says that just as giving a sacrifice and being a sacrifice involves pain that brings about atonement, We need to live miserable lives to atone for our sins. This might sound odd, but Christians have actually been struggling with this belief for nearly 2,000 years. Uh, The name of the theory is asceticism. It's the denial of the self. Martin Luther, for instance, before he started the work of the Reformation, would whip himself and spend winter nights lying naked on the cold monastery floor. In the modern age, asceticism is much more discreet, but still present. Uh, Cornflakes and graham crackers, for instance, were actually invented in the 19th century because people thought you would be holier if you ate bland food. I'm not making that up. Best day of history in my life. (laughs) Uh, Today, I think many of us uh, have been tempted by asceticism in one form or another. Uh, The primary manifestation I see is that after we have been convicted of our sin and repented of it, We start to mentally beat ourselves up over it now we we should certainly feel the full weight of our sin but after repenting we should feel the full weight of christ's atonement mentally torturing ourselves after we've repented has two dangerous outcomes first in doing so we are tacitly telling ourselves that jesus's work was not enough and that we need to pay a bit of the penalty ourselves in other words it is a rejection of grace and of god but we are tempted to it because, as Paul says in Colossians 2.23, it has the appearance of wisdom. It, it seems good. It seems good that we should punish ourselves for our sin. And yet, it is a rejection of the gift of God. Here's a second harmful outcome. While we are consumed with trying to atone for our own sin, we are wasting away time that could be spent glorifying God. I've been helped by the Puritan theologian John Owen in this matter, as he warns that if Satan is not able to stop us from repenting, he will labor to distract us from the service of God by setting our mind on our own sins. As we come to option three for what is a living sacrifice, we obviously want to pick a less heretical interpretation. And it's easy to land on, well, sacrifices please God, so Paul means that we should live in such a way that pleases God. Okay, this is true, but I don't think we should stop there. I want you to consider what has been wrong with the first two options. Both reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and suggest that we need to do some work in order to earn God's grace. But when we look at the word sacrifice, recall that every holy and acceptable sacrifice in the Bible points not to us, but to Christ. The pure and spotless lamb, well, that's Jesus, is is a son of God who became flesh, lived perfectly, and sacrificed brutally for our sins. Suffering, uh, that was done by Jesus, who was not only tortured to death, but felt the fullness of the wrath of God. You say, hang on a minute, you might be thinking, uh, Paul says that we are to be the sacrifice, he's not talking about Jesus here. Well, here's what we need to understand, if you are a Christian, you have been united with Jesus Christ. Remember Romans 6? We are baptized into Jesus Christ, into his death, burial, and resurrection. And we are united with him in his sacrifice. It doesn't mean that we atone for our sins. It means that our very souls are tied to Jesus' sacrificial life, sacrificial death, and sacrificial resurrection. Turn with me to Colossians 3.1. Uh, that's on page 984 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, And you'll want to keep a thumb there uh, because we'll return to it later on. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, Paul has just been warning the Colossians against asceticism in chapter 2. So he's been warning them against option number 2. Then he says, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And I just love this part. It says, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Notice, he doesn't say, when Christ, who loves you, appears, which is true. He doesn't say, when Christ, with whom you identify, appears. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Look, we are inescapably tied to Jesus Christ. Paul will even say, starting in Romans eight thirty eight, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we are told to live as sacrifices, I, I think we are to see who the true sacrifice is, and to live as those who are indelibly united to him. If you're still not convinced, uh, recall that sacrifices not only had the effect of atoning for sin, but when the animal or the grain was burned, it would release a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Uh, then look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, which is on page 965. So, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? we are the aroma of christ to god we we are bound up in christ's sacrifice and we are part of the outcome of the sacrifice that is pleasing to god and uh, maybe some unbelievers will, will catch a whiff at that fragrance on you and they'll think you stink of death but if we are presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice then those in the church will smell our fragrance and they will be filled with joy for they will sense the nearness of our lord jesus christ Paul cries out, who is sufficient for these things? Well, not me, not you, not not the pastors, not even Paul, as I think he expresses in the next verse. None are sufficient for these things, but Jesus himself. So I think we must root the idea of sacrifice in Jesus. Uh, Going back to our main text, look again at verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy.'" And acceptable to God. As Pastor Mike pointed out to me, or my father, uh, uh, <laughs> while I was studying this passage earlier this week, he said, Your holiness and your acceptability in God's sight are products of your relationship with Jesus. It's, it's not from us. That's why Paul calls us to do this only by the mercies of God, which is to say, we can only be living sacrifices by the power of the gospel. And if you try to do something in accordance with the gospel and your mind isn't on Jesus, then you've got a problem. And so I have this to say, if you're here visiting with us today and you don't consider yourself tied to Jesus Christ, it is my duty to warn you about something. Don't don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm grateful you're here and the church welcomes you. But please understand that no merit and no atonement performed by you alone is sufficient. I would be doing a great disservice if I let you leave this morning without hearing that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father, can come to God, except through him. And if you're curious about what that means, please come to talk to one of our pastors after the service is over. Before we move on to the next question, I want to draw your attention to one more element in this verse. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And I'm not going to spend much time here, but I-, I want you to see that body and soul are included in this exhortation. Jeremy Bentham's body was present in meetings, but his soul wasn't. Is that you? Do you drag your body to church every Sunday morning when your mind is somewhere else? Do you just go through the motions, smiling, shaking hands, mumbling along with the confessions and songs, but really your spirit is busy worshiping something else, like the nap you're going to take later today, or your financial situation, or work, or school, or, or, or uh, you know, it's today, maybe the Super Bowl. Make sure by the mercies of God's spirit that you are not merely presenting your body as a sacrifice, but that you are doing so as spiritual worship. So, question one, what is a living sacrifice? It is a Christian who lives in the worship of God as one who has been united to Christ. Question two, how do we begin the process of becoming a living sacrifice? Well, look with me at verse two. Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good. acceptable and perfect so what's what's step one well don't be conformed to the world the the greek word for conformed can insinuate being joined together no don't be joined together with the world and if you're thinking well no chance of that i'm a christian then remember that paul was writing to christians we are all going to be tempted many times this week to join with the world to conform to it you're going to be tempted at work you're going to be tempted at school you're going to be tempted at home. And I'll just give you one quick example. Uh, if, if you watch the Super Bowl today, and then if, if you watch the commercials in between, I can guarantee some of them are going to suggest that you should conform to the world. Yeah, why? Because that's what this age does. Yeah, most entertainment and ads don't come from people sitting in their room saying, Huh, how can I convince people to present their bodies to God as a living sacrifice? It's, they're, they're not trying to sanctify you. So be on your guard. Uh, be in constant prayer, not just tonight, but this week, that the Spirit will give you the will and the strength to resist that temptation. Step two, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Once again, we see that the mind needs to be engaged in spiritual worship. So how do you renew your mind? Well, uh, here are some starting points. First, uh, you, should, you should read your Bible regularly. You should listen to sermons or read godly books in your spare time. You should pray regularly. You should talk with others about what you're learning from scripture. Okay. These are all necessary, but they're not sufficient. Okay. So we, we need to practice these skills, but the skills alone will not renew our minds. Uh, think of our sermon series through Luke, where we consistently see the Pharisees doing all of these practices, yet they have very unrenewed minds. So in addition to these spiritual disciplines, I want to once again use scripture to interpret scripture. We're going to to go back to Colossians 3, starting again in verse 1. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you you are united with him, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Uh, The Pharisees performed their rote traditions, but they were not setting their minds on the things of Christ. I've learned from John Piper that the connotation of this passage is not to intellectually consider Christ, but to have an attitude that is centered on Christ. So think of the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Yeah. Okay. So the mind isn't just supposed to think about God, it's supposed to love him. Of a bit more to say in the renewal of the mind in our third section, but for now, keep this at the forefront of your attention. The mind is renewed by knowing God through his word, his people, and prayer, and it is renewed by loving God. So pursue him with everything you've got. Chase after him. And if that sounds hard, then good your understanding. For Paul says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, and to be transformed is to become something totally new, and that can't be an easy process. But oh, if only we could see the weight of glory that will come with it, we would not hesitate to beg of God that he would bring this work into completion in us. Step three, with your mind that is being renewed, Paul says, through testing, discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I'm indebted to Pastor Jared for pointing out how active this process is. It's not as though once we read and understand the Bible, we automatically know the will of God, and we don't even have to think about it. I, I want to briefly consider a few theories about how you can tell what is morally right. And I'm not bringing this up just because I want to talk about philosophy. Uh, It's because for years I've seen two unbiblical moral theories shape the way Christians think about the will of God. So here we go. Theory number one is called consequentialism. And if you're not familiar with the name, that's okay, because you're almost certainly familiar with the idea. The ends justify the means. It's called consequentialism because it is concerned with consequence, that is just end results. So Jeremy Bentham, the present but not voting skeleton, uh, was actually the man who popularized consequentialism in the modern age. Uh, When we hear that the ends justify the means, we often think, well, who would ever be tempted by that? And the answer is pretty simple. It's anyone who wants the end result. We are tempted to this method when it comes to driving, Uh, and we cut someone off so that we can be where we want to be on the road. Or in politics, when we uh, vote for someone we don't trust, but hope they'll vote for a policy we like. Or or at work, when we make a decision that disadvantages others, but helps our own project. What we do is set up neutral, Jesus-free zones, where all that matters is the end result. And we do this by telling ourselves that God really wants what he really wants is for us, you know, to, to be on time or for this certain policy to be enacted or, or for us to do well at work. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the, the day I was thinking about this part of the sermon and trying to plan it out, uh, I was able to meet with an old friend. Um, and, and, and as I was meeting with her, I was a little bit distracted because I was trying to think, you know, what's a good real-life example um, of consequentialism? And then my friend tells me that she had just been offered an ideal job. Uh, It was in the state where she wants to work. It had a great starting salary, uh, had great benefits, and she never even applied. The the company just reached out to her. And from the outside, it seemed like everything was going her way. She would finally be able to live the community she thinks she should live in. Uh, She could go back to her volunteer children's ministry work, and she could start a nice career. But she found out that uh, part of what the company does is lobby for LGBTQ plus policies. And as a quick aside, let me just say that uh, the church loves those who are in the community of LGBTQ+. Uh, we, we, we just recognize that scripture is quite clear that such lifestyles are dishonoring to God. Uh, so, so my friend labored alongside other Christians to discern what was the will of God in this matter. She put aside what seemed like good end results, good location, good community, chance to serve others. She, she put those all aside because she knew that the means of getting there would not be glorifying to God. So watch out. Even Christians can be tempted to practice evil because they think it will bring about something that pleases God. The second dangerous theory is called, here's another big word, deontology. Uh, The idea that doing our duty is what is most important. It's called deontology because the Greek word for duty is deont. I do not care if you remember this word. All I care is that you remember that it is a hyper-focus on duties. Uh, It is, of course, not wrong to do our duty. Uh, The problem comes when we say that what God really finds good and acceptable and perfect is doing what he wants us to do regardless of whether we want to do it. Some even suggest that the more you dislike doing your duty, the better it is when you do it. And again, this, this has the appearance of wisdom. It seems right to say, whoa, this person didn't want to do the right thing, but he did it anyway. He must be a really good person. But do you really think that's what God wants? Do you really think he wants us to hate serving him, but to do it anyway? This is what Israel was continually doing in the Old Testament, performing deeds that they thought would please God, but not caring about God himself. Uh, in Hosea 6.6, 6, just for one example, God says, For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Which does not mean that God didn't ordain sacrifices for Israel. It means the sacrifices offered to him were worthless if performed by those who did not love God. A principle we should not be hasty to forget, given that we are to be presenting ourselves as living sacrifices. Duty is not enough. God desires that we love him and love doing those things which he has made us to do. If you're coming to church and reading your Bible and doing all these things you think Christians are supposed to do, and you hate it, but you still think that's what God wants of you, Christian, you are not discerning the will of God. So please, Watch out for the temptation to prioritize end results and the temptation to prioritize the performance of your duties. For the will of God we learn in First Thessalonians 4, three is just this. Your sanctification. God's will is that you will become holier. That you would see... The, uh, I read the wrong part then. God's will is that you will long for him. That you will love him. So be praying that you would see this will of God in your life, that you would grow to love him more and more. So, how to begin the process of becoming a living sacrifice? Step one, don't be conformed to the world. Step two, be transformed by the renewing of our minds by testing. Step three, discern what is the will of God. I misspoke. Step three is the one that has testing in it. Okay, so now to question three, and don't worry, I'm going to be spending considerably less time going verse by verse in this one. Okay, question three says, and what context are we to become a living sacrifice? And for this one, I'm just going to give you the answer up front. We are to become living sacrifices in the context of the church. So look with me now in verse three. Paul says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And then he goes on to talk about the analogy of the church and the body. We're just stop here for a second. Why, when discussing the church, does Paul first encourage us to humility? It's because a church that focuses more on individual prowess than on God does not have to be Uh, sorry a church that focuses more on individual prowess than a focus on god does not have a renewed mind and i get my understanding of this from first corinthians Uh, when paul wrote this letter to the church in corinth the christians there were divided because they were associating themselves with particular preachers some were saying i follow paul others cried out i follow apollos and some said well peter's my guy And, and some just even say i follow christ and Paul says to them in First Corinthians uh, chapter uh, one, verse 10, he says, "I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And it's worth asking, why are Christians who squabble amongst themselves not of the same mind? Well, Paul will say something else about the mind about a page later. Uh, this last verse of chapter 2, Paul's talking about how spiritual Christians are able to understand the things of God and says, but we have the mind of Christ. Okay. Here's what I suggest is going on. Those who are transformed by the renewing of their mind have the mind of Christ. But when we elevate ourselves above others, we are not renewing our minds. And bitter, petty quarrels break out among us. So, Christ First Church, you should be honest with yourself. Do you struggle with this tendency? Watch out for the temptation because it will come. Be on guard lest you promote yourself above others. So connected is the renewed mind and humility that Paul immediately goes from talking of the renewed mind to the church in Rome and then says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Sometimes we attempt humility, like it's a game of, of hot potato. You know, pride lands in our hands and go, oop, don't, don't want that, and kind of toss it on to the next person. And we end up puffing them up rather than building them up. We, we, we might decide we're, we're done with our pride, and then attempting to extract it from our own hearts, we just lavish praise on someone else. But humility isn't something that we should just want for ourselves. Paul makes it clear that we should be desiring it for the whole church. He says, I say to you, or rather, I misread that. It says, I say to everyone among you not to of yourself more highly than you want. The best way I know to be actively working against this temptation is to get in the habit of God-centric thanksgiving. So look for how you can express gratitude to God for the service of one of your fellow members. Uh, take a few seconds and, and just think of someone. Right, you have, have someone in mind now? Okay, so express gratitude to them before you leave this morning, but keep the gratitude God-centric. So don't say, hey, I really appreciate you and the service you perform. Tell them, I thank God for the good work he is doing through you. You see the difference? One method sets our minds on ourselves. The other sets our minds on the things that are above, where Christ is seated. Remember, our humility is is directly linked to the renewal of our minds. Now we continue. Uh, Next verse, Paul says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Uh, Today, uh, Christ first is excited to accept new members. And I trust it's no accident that the day I planned to preach the first bit of Romans 12 turned out to be the day we're going to accept members. Uh, What I'm about to say is mainly preaching to the choir, but even as I say something, most of you hopefully agree with, uh, I, I hope that will be a cause for you to reflect on and rejoice in your current membership, or for those who are, who are just joining us today, I hope will be a cause uh, to only increase your eagerness to covenant with Christ first church. So today we, we uh, live amidst a very popular theory about church membership, and it goes something like this. It says, well, uh, the Bible never tells us to become members of a church, it's just something church leaders came up with moreover all that really matters is my personal relationship with jesus i don't need to belong to a church for that Uh, perhaps some of you here are going to find with attending but don't want to get sucked into the crazy notion of church membership so what is church membership well it's being a functioning bonded part of the church the word member that paul uses can also be translated part or appendage Uh, he's just saying you're you're A body part of the church. Uh, Today, we face a lot of confusion about membership because in the mid-14th century, uh, people started using the English word member a a little more metaphorically, uh, such that it no longer strictly referred to the body. Uh, It was perhaps most solidified when the English started referring to men and their government as members of parliament. And of course, we see that today it's kind of gone crazy, right? Uh, We have membership offers thrown at us every time we go to a store. You know, do you want to be a member of JCPenney's? How about Sears or or AMC? Uh, uh, Sometimes you you can't even make a purchase at a store without someone trying to persuade you to become a member there. And of course, uh, these these huge companies don't care about you. They're, They're not trying to welcome you into their community. They're trying to give you a discount so that you'll shop there more often. And whether you want to be a member then depends solely on your desire to consume their products. And so we've forgotten what membership actually means, namely belonging to a body. And I found ourselves thinking about membership in terms of can I get more out of this institution if I agree to membership? There's absolutely no thought about the role you should play or about how the institution might, might actually have a loftier goal than your personal pleasure. Look, this, this is how many professing Christians view the church. They recognize that sometimes they have a spiritual need, so they'll attend a church service to have their need fulfilled. Maybe they'll come every week, maybe they'll show up once a year, but regardless to these folks, church is all about them. It's a consumer's world where they can go to get what they want out of it. But Paul says, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Now, you, think, you think the Bible doesn't say you should become a member? Well, in a way, I suppose that's true. Paul doesn't even seem to leave it as a choice. <laughs> he, he outright says these Christians are already members. Uh, the reason we go through the application process now is because we no longer just have one church per town, uh, as it was when Paul was writing. And so we, we don't want to steal members from other churches, so, so we have a process. But, uh, but, but membership is clearly in Scripture, not the consumerist membership, but being a part of the body. For visitors, don't think this is me just trying to pressure you into becoming a member here. I I earnestly desire that all Christians be members of a gospel-believing local church. But I don't particularly care if that church is Christ first. I do care if you're not a member of a church at all. Say Why? It's because if you're a Christian, you are a body part, This is what Paul says. And body parts cannot live on their own. I'll just illustrate this. Do you, you ever go to Walmart and see, like, an elbow unattached just trying to buy produce? You ever see, like, like, an ear trying to push a shopping cart? I, I seriously hope not, but if anyone has, please let me know. <clears throat> well, I, okay, this, we, we don't see this because that's not how body parts work. And Paul says Christians are body parts. We, we need others to function. And look, just like body parts, we all have different functions. Paul says that uh, God gives those functions to us, and I want you to ask yourself, why? If we weren't supposed to be joined together, why would God not just give us every gift we need to live a holy life? Well, we know from the Tower of Babel that when God wanted men to spread out, he changed their language so that they could not function as one group. And I think the opposite happens with the church. I think God shapes our abilities so that we cannot function without each other. Remember how being conformed to the world could also be translated as being joined to the world? I think the options are are quite clear here. See, we we are just kind of free-floating body parts, and we can either be joined to the world or we can be joined to the body of Christ. All this in-between stuff, is ridiculous and makes about as much sense as an elbow buying fruit the the idea that the church is about you or about me or about anyone or anything else besides our triune god is utter nonsense and i i mean that i i don't think that idea is going to heaven with us i i don't think that after we're glorified we're even going to be tempted to think that this is all about us so maybe you say that you have your own personal relationship with jesus But to be perfectly honest, I doubt it's a good one. Do do you really think that Jesus is pleased when we ignore his body? And when we ignore our own need for his body? For Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and has now made us alive together with him. And our souls are bound to him, so we must also be bound one to another. Now for the members. Uh, Look here at the next verse. Paul says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I was all to understand that being a member isn't just signing the covenant. It's not just being accepted by the church. It's living as the church was designed to live. And just like every part of the body has a function, so do you. I want, you to, uh, sorry, I, I want to leave you with three quick principles about the function of the church. So, principle number one. The function you have is a gift from God, given by grace. See to it that if you have a gift, you've explored with the church how you can use it. So This applies to lifelong members, and it applies to day-old members. Seek earnestly to use your gifts, but also keep in mind that they are to be used as God's grace to his people. Stay on guard against being proud of the gift you have been given, for it is just that, a gift. Principle two. Notice that each gift is used in a certain manner. Uh, the prophet, for instance, in proportion to his faith. The giver with generosity, the merciful with cheerfulness life will go awry if we exercise gifts in the wrong manner this is why many are skeptical of prophecy Uh, all too often we see those with little evidence of great faith trying to prophesy so consider this lesson just because you like the idea of doing something in the church doesn't necessarily mean that you should do it i might like the idea of playing saxophone while we sing but when i play the sound has literally been described as a dying cat So, earnestly say to use your gifts, but don't be embarrassed or bitter if the elders or pastors think it would be wise for you to serve in a different way than you had planned. Principle three, you do not need to hold an office in the church to exercise your gifts. You you don't need to be a Sunday school teacher to teach scripture. You You can invite someone out for coffee and study the word of God together. You don't need to be a deacon to serve. Look for what can be done in the church You don't need to be an elder to perform acts of mercy. If you see someone needs mercy, give it freely. For we are those who have been brought from death to life in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we are to live in accordance with our union to Jesus as a living sacrifice, emitting the fragrance of Christ, which is pleasing to God. We are ourselves to take joy in God, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds, so that we may know the will of god and we are to do this as a church the body of christ members one of another this is what we are to do but is it what we are doing or are we jeremy bentham bodily present but spiritually absent dear father i ask that that you would help us to continue to study your word um, that this morning would not be uh, the definitive end to the study, but merely the definitive beginning, um, that it would encourage all of us to, to return to, to Romans 12, to Colossians 3, uh, to seek out what it is that you would have us be. Um, help us to meditate on who we are in Christ Jesus. Help us to walk by your Spirit. Uh, help us to love you more and more each day. Father, I ask that you be with, with everyone here, both uh, both the members and those who are, who are not yet members at Christ First and those who are visiting that regardless of their standing in the church, regardless of their standing with you now, that, that they will be drawn to you, that they will be given a love of you and that they will know your love that surpasses knowledge. In Jesus' name we pray.